I would invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word and you're so inclined, to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 10. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you have an electronic device, uh, you can go to ESV. E, S is in Sam, V is in Victor, ESV.org, and then just search for Acts chapter 10, and that should take you to where we're going to be this morning in the book of Acts. And the title of the sermon, Jesus Risen to Judge and to Save. And even as we just sung about, indeed, what genuine living hope is known through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the rock, He is the Redeemer and the gracious Savior of ruined lives. Scripture testifies that Jesus suffered and He bled and He died as a substitute bearing on His shoulders all of the guilt of sinners who would trust Him. God raised Him on the third day, forever conquering the grave and death, forever breaking the bonds of sin and shame for every believer. And what we just sang of is the hope of the gospel, the hope of the good news. And the text that's before us this morning in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43, it really reveals a dazzling portrait of these very truths. And so before we look into God's Word, let me lead us in prayer as we ask for His help. Let me pray. Our mighty Father in heaven, we thank You for the living hope that You have given in Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. And as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to fully behold and to truly believe the greatness of Your provision in Christ. And with the same power in which you raised him from the dead, may you now powerfully open our eyes and work in our lives for our deepest good and for your brightest glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, just before I read the text, just a few words of background. The book of Acts is all about the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, the spreading of the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And this preaching which followed the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. And leading up to Acts chapter 10, where I'm going to read in just a moment, Peter and the other apostles have been faithfully preaching the good news. But up to this point, they've only been doing so among the Jews, among the nation of Israel. Well, now in Acts chapter 10, God has dramatically directed Peter to preach to the household of a Gentile, to the household of a non-Jew, a man named Cornelius. And this is a massive turning point as the early church learns that the gospel is for all nations. It's not just for the Jews. And so we're told at the beginning of chapter 10 that this man Cornelius, that he was a military official in the Italian cohort of the Roman army. And we're told that he was a devout, God-fearing man who generously gave alms, gave money to people, and that he prayed continually. But for all he was, Cornelius was not saved. 
this good man was still a sinner who needed to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God sends Peter to preach Jesus to Cornelius. And this is where we pick it up in verse 34 of chapter 10, and I'm going to read through verse 43. And so, hear the word of the living God. So, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, some of you know that I was diagnosed with prostate cancer at the end of January last year in 2021. And indeed, that news was lump in the throat, bad news. It's the news that no one wants to get. And naturally, as many of you have perhaps experienced with similar diagnoses, my immediate and instinctive response was, what are my options here for remedy? Uh, How bad is the problem and how can I be healed? And of course, undergirding all of that is the question, is there any hope? Well, in God's providence, my cancer was in a lightly advanced stage. I had surgery in April of last year to have my prostate removed, and I'm currently feeling great with no indications of cancer in my body. But we all understand, don't we, often with grieving hearts, that physical diseases and the threat of death are very real and very sobering. But a far greater threat exists for every single one of us. And it's the danger of eternal judgment from God because of our sin. And if our conscience is sensitive at all to the reality of sin and guilt before God, our immediate and instinctive response is to ask something to the effect of, What are my options for remedy here? How bad is the problem of my sin? And how can I be healed? Can I be forgiven? Can I be saved from God's eternal judgment? Can I be accepted by God and have peace with Him? 
Of course, undergirding this in an eternal way is the question, is there any real hope? Well, all of these questions are emphatically answered with the real eternal hope that is proclaimed in the text that we're looking at in Acts 10. Living hope that is centered in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the force of this text is a call for each one of us to behold and to believe God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ risen. That's the force. That's the call of this text. That's the big idea of what we're looking at. To behold and to believe God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ risen. And so what I want to do is explore this text by looking at the two focuses of this call, namely to behold and to believe. That's what we're going to look at as we move through this text. And we're going to spend most of the time on the first part of this, but the first part of it, beholding, of course, leads to the second part, believing. So first of all, beholding, beholding God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ risen. Uh, This is what we see in the entire passage from verse 34 through verse 43. And through the preaching of Peter here, the Holy Spirit gives us really a stunning and a ravishing picture of God's provision in Jesus Christ risen. risen. This is a glorious, life-giving portrait, and it involves a number of elements a number of elements to what the Lord wants us to behold here. The first element is this. With Peter's opening words in verses 34 and 35, we see that God's provision in Jesus Christ is impartial. God's provision in Jesus Christ is impartial. Listen to what Peter says, verse 34 and 35. He says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now up to this point, Peter and the other leaders of the early church, they thought that God's provision in Jesus, the blessing of salvation, was only for the Jews. They thought that God was partial to the Jews, that Israel alone was his chosen favorite. And so they thought that if any Gentile, if any non-Jew was to come to know God's blessings, they would have to convert to Judaism. They would have to become like Jews and be circumcised. But earlier in chapter 10, and we're not going to take time to look at it in detail now, but what we read of in the earlier part of chapter 10 is a supernatural vision that God gave to Peter, which began to change his understanding. And God used this vision to help Peter realize that God was impartial and that anyone from any nation could be accepted by him. And so you see, God's vision was breaking down Peter's ethnic prejudice and his barriers. He was making him willing to go and preach the good news to this Gentile Cornelius and his household. Now within the Jewish worldview at the time, this was absolutely radical, but it was absolutely right. 
Because God's provision in Jesus Christ is impartial. It's available to anyone without regard to any ethnic or other worldly distinction. Well, this leads to a second element that we see in the picture here, and that is that God's provision in Jesus Christ is essential. It's not only impartial, but it is essential. And so Peter continues in verse 36 by saying, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And what Peter is identifying is that the word God first sent to Israel, which Peter now understood was for all people of all nations, it was the preaching of the good news of peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is really the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news from God. It's the essential issue of how a sinner who is at war with God, who is an enemy of God, can be brought to peace with Him. And you see, this is what Peter emphasizes, and this peace that Peter speaks of here is very much connected with the essential forgiveness that Peter is going to speak about down in verse 42. And the implication of this is that sinful people cannot bring about this peace on their own. It can only be provided by God. And think about this. Even a God-fearing, devout man like Cornelius, he could never do enough good works in his life to achieve this peace. He could never do enough righteous deeds like giving alms and praying continually. None of that could save him. None of that could bring him to peace with God. Unless God freely and graciously provides the means of peace to sinners at war with Him, it can never be achieved. It can never be earned. And so God's provision in Jesus Christ is essential. Well, this connects with a third element of the picture that we're to behold, namely that God's provision in Jesus Christ is exclusive. It's exclusive. It's impartial, it's essential, and it's also exclusive. And so maybe you notice there in verse 36, Peter says the good news of peace is through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And so this is an emphatic and an exclusive declaration Jesus Christ is Lord of all people. He's the Lord of every person and of every nation, including you and me. And so no one makes Jesus Lord. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one in absolute, unchanging, exclusive authority. And He and He alone is the exclusive source of salvation, the exclusive source of peace with God is found only in Him. Jesus Christ is God's only remedy for the deadly, enslaving disease of sin. Earlier in the book of Acts, back in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said it this way, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other means 
under or no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so behold this clear truth, dear friends. God's provision in Jesus Christ is exclusive. It is exclusive. Well, with what Peter goes on to proclaim in verses 37 through the beginning of verse 40, we see a fourth element of this magnificent picture of God's provision in Jesus Christ. And it is this, God's provision in Jesus Christ is historical. God's provision in Jesus Christ is historical. And notice how everything that Peter says here involves the historical public realities of Jesus' baptism, of his life, of his death, and his resurrection. And so he begins by telling Cornelius and his household in verse 37, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. And with that statement, Peter is saying this is common, historical, public knowledge concerning Jesus Christ. You know about him. In other words, the details about Jesus... They were not mystical, man-made myths, but they were actual historical facts. Peter alludes to the fact that Jesus' ministry began in Galilee after the baptism that John the Baptist had proclaimed. And when Jesus himself was baptized by John, at that time God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. This was an actual event that many people witnessed. And then Peter goes on to summarize Jesus' ministry before he went to the cross as him going about and doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So Peter and many others were eyewitnesses to these realities, which are now, of course, permanently recorded by God in the four gospel accounts in the New Testament of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Peter is speaking of Jesus' life in a historical way, and of course in a very abbreviated way, but he's highlighting this. Well, then Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And this is another historical fact that all four gospel accounts declare. Jesus was publicly crucified for everyone to see. Now the they that is spoken of there, it refers to all of the human beings who were involved in killing Jesus. That would include the hypocritical Jewish religious leaders. It would include the expedient Roman political leaders. It would include the bloodthirsty Roman soldiers. And it would include the self-serving, gullible crowds. All were complicit in hanging Jesus on a tree. And Peter uses this phrase in a very specific way, death by hanging him on a tree. Peter says this to highlight the fact that Jesus died as one cursed by God. Because all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, we read there, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
And the Apostle Paul actually also speaks of this in Galatians chapter 3. Now, of course, in Acts chapter 10, Peter doesn't really elaborate on this, but he's clearly alluding to the theological truth that by hanging on a tree, Jesus died as the sin-bearing, as the curse-bearing substitute for everyone who would trust him. In fact, years later, Peter explains this more in his first letter near the end of the New Testament when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Well, back to Acts chapter 10, Peter is making clear that God was in total control of what happened at the cross. Because he goes on to say at the beginning of verse 40, but, but, and this is in strong and emphatic contrast to what sinful people had done in murdering Jesus, but God raised him on the third day. And this is another decisive historical reality. What man had intended for evil in killing Jesus, God actually intended for good. And he powerfully raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, just as Jesus had promised. And the fact that Christ's resurrection happened on the third day verifies that he had actually died and had been put in a tomb. You see, he didn't just pass out from all the physical trauma that he endured on the cross and then eventually was resuscitated. No, he fully died. And this was a fact that was also confirmed by the soldiers who crucified him as it's recorded in the gospel accounts. But Jesus literally died and then he fully, literally, and miraculously rose from the dead. I just want you to hear one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And by the way, the human author of the gospel of Luke, of course, was named Luke, hence it's called the gospel of Luke. Uh, But that's volume one. The book of Acts that we're looking at this passage in Acts chapter 10 was also written from the human author Luke. So it's sort of volume one and volume two, all of it, of course, under the inspiration of God. But listen to what we read in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1 of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We read, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, some women, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, Peter, rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so Peter witnessed what had happened, beloved. He witnessed real, actual history. And so we understand with what he's declaring in Acts chapter 10, that God's provision in Jesus Christ is historical. It is historical. But there's more. There's more. We come to a fifth element to behold in our text. Not only is God's provision in Jesus Christ impartial, essential, exclusive, and historical, but it's also, number five, confirmed. It's confirmed. Look at verses 40 through 42. God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And you see what's happening here and what's being spoken of here, friends, is that not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he confirmed this historical event by providing eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses, which included Peter, were told there later in Luke chapter 24, that they ate and drank with the resurrected Jesus. And this is what Peter speaks of in Acts 10. This was no ghost that they saw. This was no disembodied spirit. This was no hallucination. This was Jesus resurrected in the flesh, as these witnesses confirmed. And these same witnesses then were commanded by Jesus to preach and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, which means everyone, everyone. And so Jesus commands them, as we even learn of this earlier at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he commands them just before ascending to the Father in heaven. He says there, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as I alluded to earlier, the whole book of Acts, all 28 chapters of it, is, uh, and even as it's structured by the geographic expansion that Jesus states there in chapter 1, verse 8, the entire book describes the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel. And this Spirit-empowered impact, friends, it's still reverberating to this very day. As God is still working by His Holy Spirit, through His Word, to save sinners like you and like me. Because God's provision in Jesus Christ is confirmed. Well, stay with me. There's just two more elements of God's provision for us to behold here. Two more. The sixth element is that God's provision in Jesus Christ is authoritative. It is authoritative. And I hope you see this in the text. I've already mentioned Peter emphatically says of Jesus in verse 36, He is Lord of 
all. He's Lord of all. And this is an all-inclusive, comprehensive, unequivocal, constantly true statement. Jesus Christ is and always will be the one in sovereign, supreme, righteous, loving authority over all creation, over every single human being, including you and including me. You see, the little phrase, Jesus is Lord, is so much more than a pithy little slogan. It is the truth that defines all reality. And as I said earlier, no one makes Jesus Lord, and no one can escape His authority. He's at the right hand of God the Father even now. He rules over all. And so, in verse 42, Peter really adds by way of an exclamation point to this truth when he says, uh, with Jesus being risen, that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Every single human being, whoever has lived, whoever is living, and whoever will live, is accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge. You see, friends, we are not masters of our own destiny, and Jesus does not govern according to the will of the people. In fact, we the people, not only of this nation, but of every nation on the face of the earth, is accountable to His perfect, holy judgment. He's not accountable to our judgment. We're accountable to Him. Friends, we hear a lot these days about the importance of inclusiveness. Well, let me just say that the Lord Jesus Christ is inclusive of everyone. Everyone is included in accountability to Him. No one can escape and no one will escape. If you question or you deny or you reject the authoritative judgment of Jesus Christ, just read the book of Revelation. Jesus has risen and He is exalted now in heaven and He will come again to execute eternal judgment on the living and the dead. God's provision in Jesus is authoritative. Well, one last element to see, and this is the comforting hope. And that is this, God's provision in Jesus Christ is salvation. God's provision in Jesus Christ is salvation. And this is the practical, life-changing, hope-igniting point of application that Peter's whole message is driving to. And so he proclaims in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is the good news, friends, of peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter declares that the witness that he and the other apostles are bearing of the risen Lord, that their witness is built upon the entire Old Testament prophetic witness of Jesus. And the forgiveness of sins that is known in him, that anyone can know this forgiveness through faith in his name. 
So what Peter is saying is that the salvation of God that he has provided in Jesus Christ, it's the whole point of the message of Scripture. All of Scripture is all about uh, this salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ. It's about God's sovereign, gracious plan of redemption, His loving promise plan to bring this forgiveness, to bring the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners. Now, Peter understood this because he was present when the risen Lord Jesus instructed him and the other apostles. And so later on in Luke chapter 24, as we heard a bit of earlier today, we find these words beginning in verse 44 of Luke 24. Uh, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Did you catch that? When he's talking about everything written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's talking about all of the Old Testament Scripture. And he's saying, it's all about me and it all must be fulfilled. And then we go on to read verse 45 of Luke 24. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so this is what Peter is doing. He's, he's more and more proclaiming the hope of the gospel to all nations. And make note of this, friends. The life-changing and the transformative, the restorative blessings of salvation in Jesus are what marked his earthly ministry as he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, as Peter mentions in verse 38. In other words, during his earthly ministry, before he went to the cross, all of the earthly good that Jesus did for people was really a foretaste of the spiritual, eternal good of salvation accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so you see, this is the glory of glories of God's provision in Jesus Christ and in the salvation that is found only in him. And so in all of this, this is what God through the Holy Spirit through Peter, is wanting us to behold this majestic picture of God's salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, of God's provision. And this brief and powerful summary of God's provision, it declares and it displays the gift, the gift of His undeserved, sovereign, and overflowing grace in Christ. With what Peter is saying, he's shining forth this hope-imparting, soul-comforting excellencies of God's provision, of the gift of His grace that is found in Jesus Christ. And I hope you hear, and I hope you see, and I hope you understand that these life-giving, active words, they weren't just for Cornelius and his household, but they're for all of us including you and including me. God wants you and I to behold the riches of His gracious, superabundant provision in Jesus Christ. All of His provision that is impartial 
essential, exclusive, historical, confirmed, authoritative, and that is salvation. But, as I mentioned near the beginning, the call of the text isn't just focused on beholding God's provision in Christ. Because, friend, you see, it's not enough to just see it. God also calls every person to believe on Christ, to believe and to be saved. And so this is the second focus of the call of the text. Not only to behold, but to believe God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ risen. And so again, this is what Peter emphasizes in verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness. And here it is, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And you see, the point of Peter's preaching is to provoke, it's to entice, it's to command and to plead with Cornelius and his household to believe on Jesus Christ and to know the full forgiveness of their sins through His name. And that little phrase, through His name, it it has to do with the sufficiency of who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And so this is to know peace with God through the Lord Jesus. And so with these words, God is calling you and God is calling me to believe on Jesus Christ and to know the full forgiveness of our sins through His name. To know real and eternal peace with God. I want you to notice how Peter's call for a response here, his call to believe, is really universally exclusive. It's universally exclusive. In other words, it's universal in that it's addressed to everyone. Everyone. One scholar has said that this phrase really crashes through the barrier of race and nationality. And indeed it does. It crashes through every barrier of human distinctions that we might make. As Peter said at the beginning of verses 34 and 35, God shows no partiality and anyone from every nation can be accepted by Him. It's universal in its scope. But notice the call is also exclusive in that the promised blessings are only for those, only for those who do what? Who believe in Him. Who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so believing in Jesus Christ is the exclusive condition. It's interesting that in verse 36, Peter says that everyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Well, think about this. Connected with what he goes on to say in verse 43, it's clear that the essence of fearing God and doing what is right is to believe in Jesus Christ. You see, even though we're told that Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man who did good and who prayed continually, this really, really, really good man could only be saved. He could only be forgiven, accepted, and brought to peace with God. He could only be saved by believing in Jesus Christ. 
It's universally exclusive. There is no salvation apart from believing in Jesus Christ. So then, of course, we have to ask the question, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Vitally important question. Well, it's more than just agreeing to a bunch of facts. It's a, it's a heart response at the very core of your being. And what it means to believe in Jesus is to, first of all, recognize and come to terms with the fact that you are a guilty and enslaved sinner who cannot save yourself. In various ways, you, just like me, and just like every human being, we've disobeyed God's commands in varieties of ways. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And so to believe on Him means to recognize that and then to place all of our trust, all of our confidence, all of our hope in Jesus and Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. It means to trust fully in the sufficiency of Jesus' righteous life, in the sufficiency of His substitutionary death, and of the sufficiency of His glorious resurrection and ascension. It means to trust all of God's gracious, superabundant provision in Jesus Christ. Friend, to believe in the Lord Jesus by placing all your trust, confidence, and hope in Him, it thus means that you turn away from all other false hopes that you might trust in. It means turning away from denying that you are a sinful, enslaved person accountable to God. It means turning away from relying on your own self-righteousness, your own good works. It means turning away from relying on your own thoughts and feelings and understanding. It means turning away from trying to be your own Lord and Savior and trusting Jesus alone as your own Lord and Savior. One pastor has said it this way, quote, You cannot live a life for God until you receive a life from God, end quote. And so there's no thought of even trying to please God apart from, in essence, falling on our faces before Him and acknowledging, I am a sinner who needs the salvation that only you can provide, and I look only to you and receive what you so abundantly provide in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's turning away from all other trusts and turning to Christ and Christ alone. And so this believing in Christ is what Peter and the other apostles understood as the repentance that leads to life, as they speak of it in chapter 11, verse 18 in the book of Acts. That's what repentance is all about. It's turning away from every false trust, and it's turning to the only true trust in Jesus Christ. Turning from sin and self turning to Christ in faith, receiving His life. And that's what it means to believe in Him. And this universally exclusive call to believe is echoed many other places in Scripture. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 to 13 declares it when he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. 
He goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I would just ask you this morning, dear friend, whether you're with us here in person, whether you're with us online, have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior, or is He only your judge? There is salvation in no one else. You can call on Him this moment in prayer by faith, and He will save you according to His promise. Call on Him and know the forgiveness of your sins. Call on Him and know peace with God through the Lord Jesus the one who is the rock and the redeemer and the gracious savior of your ruined life. He will heal and he will keep you forever. By the way, you may wonder, how did Cornelius and his household respond? Well, they got saved. They got saved. You can read about it beginning in verse 44 to the end of chapter 10. They got saved in God's mighty provision, the Holy Spirit came upon them and saved them. Well, as we draw this together, let me just say this. In my experience with prostate cancer, I learned that it is known as the silent killer. And it's often, it's called that because it often goes completely undetected in a person until it is too late. In other words, there are often no symptoms at all until the cancer has grown to an advanced stage and the remedy is impossible. Well, sadly, the presence of sin in our lives is often undetected by us. It's part of the deceptive nature of sin and because of our own pride and selfishness. We don't see our sin for what it really is. It's often undetected. We're blind to it. We're unaware of sin's cancerous, eternally deadly presence. And it's only when our sin is exposed and we accept the true diagnosis of our sinful condition, it's only then that we can receive God's remedy, God's extravagant provision in the Lord Jesus Christ risen. And so friends, this is reality. This is reality. Jesus is risen to judge and to save. And He is coming again as He has promised. So will you know Him as your eternal judge? Or will you know Him as your eternal Savior? Believe on Christ today and be saved. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for uh, Your amazing work and purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ through His life, through His death, through His resurrection and the salvation in Him that You have designed and accomplished so that people would know peace with You, 
people like every single one of us who deserve nothing but judgment and condemnation and wrath and that you yet you hold before each of us this offer of salvation that we could be forgiven that we could be brought to peace with you that we could have a hope that is real and that is eternal and that we might be reconciled to the to you and to the very purposes for which you created us Father, I pray that all that are within the hearing of this now would know this hope in fullest measure and would rejoice in the greatness of the salvation that you have given and provided in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen and amen.